Before I say anything else, um, I, I need to apologize to everyone who's been a part of planning or promoting this service uh, this morning. And the reason I need to apologize is that as late as Thursday morning, I was, I was working on the next passage in the series that we've been in on the, on the last days of Jesus, and that's, that's what everybody in this service had planned for. But between Thursday morning and today, some things happened that made me think that I needed to, to change course. I'll tell you about that in just a minute. It's been a long summer. A month or so ago in a sermon and in a column in the newspaper, I listed in detail all of the most notable acts of violence that have happened here in America and then, of course, throughout the world even this summer. And with those events in mind, I was organizing the the prayer service that we have tonight. And I was organizing that prayer service around the theme of social justice. And then on Wednesday, a 6.4 magnitude earthquake hit a small village in Italy. I'm sure some of you have been following this. And by Thursday afternoon, the death tolls had risen to, well, the last number that I have seen Uh, Over 290 people dead in the region and more still unaccounted for. And then as you know, uh, in Kokomo, um, Kokomo gets hit by an F3 tornado. And while to my knowledge, nobody was killed, the last I saw, 220 people, mostly from apartment complexes, are staying in temporary shelters because their homes were absolutely destroyed. And then, of course, over... 40,000 people in Louisiana have had to leave their homes because of devastating flooding in the last couple of weeks. Besides those world and national events, there are some things that have hit me uh, hard, very personally, this summer. Earlier this summer, I learned that a worship leader who worked for me a number of years ago uh, committed suicide. A few weeks ago, I learned that a good friend of ours from Dallas was diagnosed with lung cancer, and she never smoked a cigarette in her life. And then perhaps the one that hit me the hardest of all of them was that my younger brother's Parkinson's disease has so debilitated him that either he was going to have to spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair or have what amounted to brain surgery. He opted for the brain surgery, and thankfully his symptoms have abated for a while. But all of this stuff that has happened over the summer has raised for me again a question that has plagued me the most as a Christian and even as a pastor, and frankly, it's a question that has plagued me even this summer. And sometimes it has tempted me to throw my faith uh, over you know, this sort of over the side and to just renounce what I believe and to walk away from Christianity. And the question is just, why does God allow all of this stuff? Maybe you've asked that question. I know that some of you think that working in a church really isn't like working in the real world, and I get why you say that. I worked in the marketplace myself before I got into ministry, but... I would bet that I get a broader and more frequent dose of the real world, at least the evil and the suffering of the real world, than many of you. 
I've held parents who have just learned that they lost a child. I've been at the bedside of good young men and women as they breathe their last breath. I've done funerals for infants and for children and for dads and moms who've left behind young children. I've tried to comfort loved ones whose family members have succumbed to the ravages of depression and hopelessness through suicide. I've been called to aid women whose husbands have beaten them within an inch of their life. And I've counseled family members whose children were killed by drunk drivers. That's all pretty real world. I don't know if you would agree with me, but that's all pretty real world stuff. And in every one of those cases, I find myself asking the same question. It comes up every time something like this happens for me. Every time. And the question again, it's why God? Why do you allow this stuff? And in so many of these cases, the people that are afflicted are such good people. They're genuine, sincere people. Christ followers. People like my brother. One of the best men that I know. And I wonder, why do you allow this stuff to happen to such good people, God? And so with all of this in my mind and then prompted by the rising death tolls in Italy and the tornado in Kokomo, I decided Thursday afternoon that I needed to speak on the issue of evil and suffering. And I'll be honest with you, I honestly can't say whether I thought some of you needed it or whether I needed it more. I guess that's one of the privileges of pastoring a church. You get to decide whether, <laughs> what you want to preach on. And if you need it more, you can preach on it. And maybe I need it more today than some of you do. I didn't have much time to put this uh, together. As I said, I decided to do it on Thursday afternoon. I don't, know what if I, I don't know if what I have to say this morning will be as thorough and as structured uh, as I normally try to be when I speak, but hopefully what it lacks in thoroughness and structure, it will make up for in the timeliness of the subject. And perhaps some of you who may be wrestling with this same question this morning might find some comfort in it. I want to take you to a passage of scripture that every time this comes up, I go back to. It's a passage, it's a very personal passage of scripture for me. It's meant a great deal to me over the years. It's Psalm 73. And if you have a Bible, you can turn there to Psalm 73. I'm not going to read the the whole passage today uh, because I don't have time. But this psalm has helped me a great deal as I've thought about the problem of evil and suffering in the world in general. And in my relational world, specifically, the people that mean the most to me. I just want to show you some highlights from this passage and some of the key ideas from it that have helped me uh, a great deal. Psalm 73. This psalm is written by a man who has experienced some very difficult, very dark days. And he has been wrestling himself with the question of evil and suffering, specifically in his case as it relates to the issue of social justice, actually social injustice as he sees it. And I want to read from you, uh, read with you from Psalm uh, 73. We'll start at verse 1. And as I said, we're not going to read the whole thing. But just let's read a portion of this. Surely God is good to Israel, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. You ever felt any of that? Skip down to verse 12. 
This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely I in vain, I have kept my heart pure. In vain, I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I've been punished. Every morning, skip down to verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Now, I want you to notice a few things very quickly about this man that I've been able to relate to this summer and in many times uh, over the years when I've seen evil and suffering in my own life, in someone's life that I care about, or even evil and suffering just in the world. The first thing I want you to notice is that this guy, he's angry. Verse 21, as he sees all of this evil and suffering and social injustice, he says that his spirit was embittered, and he says he's a brute beast. He was a brute beast before God. That's how angry he was. He was a brute beast before God. Second, I want you to notice that this is a very godly man. If you were to read this this whole psalm, you would see that very, very clearly that this is a very godly man. Even in the few verses that we, uh, that we have read, you can see that. Verse 13 describes him as a man who has uh, kept his heart pure. And then I want you to notice, too, that besides being a very godly man, the text says that he, is, that he has been doubting, that he is, he is doubting. It says that he's, he says that he nearly lost his foothold. And what he's talking about is his foothold of faith. He says, I've nearly lost my faith over this whole thing. As he looks at all of this evil and suffering. You know, it, it's, it's very comforting to me that I'm not the only one who feels some of these things. I've felt all of those things in the face of suffering. Have you? Any of you felt those things? It's very comforting to me to know that a godly man who has his, his words here recorded in Scripture is also a man who has doubted and been angry at times when he has looked around and and seen suffering in the world and evil in the world that he can't explain. But I'm going to tell you something. You know, every time that I've ever preached on this passage or something like that, and every time I've ever said, you know, I've I've gotten angry, uh, I've doubted when I've seen suffering and evil, I kid you not, every time that I have ever said in a sermon that I felt those things, someone listening to that sermon over the internet felt compelled to send me an email or a letter telling me that some health and wealth televangelist like Joel Osteen says that if I was really a man of faith, I wouldn't experience this doubt, and maybe, maybe that's why bad things have happened to me, because I'm doubting. I want to tell you something. If anyone listening over the internet this morning is planning on sending me that kind of email, I want to give you an email address that you can send it to. It's don't bother me with your bad theology at gmail.com. That's all one word, word, so just you can send it to don't bother me with your bad theology at gmail.com. And then I want to tell you something else. Later today on Twitter, I'm going to tweet this, and I want you to feel free to retweet this if you, if you see it, if you're out on Twitter. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to tweet this. Bad things happen to people of faith. And sometimes we get angry about it and experience doubt. And then I'm going to hashtag it, Psalm 73. And I'm going to hashtag it, shut your pie hole, Joel Osteen. <laughs> and then hashtag City Church EVV as well, if that's not too many characters. I don't know. Be watching for that. Feel free to retweet it uh, this afternoon. I'm not kidding you. I'm going to tweet that. 
This man in this psalm, is, he's, he's very godly, and, and he's, yet he's, he's, he's very angry and doubting. I, I, wish that, I wish this were common knowledge, that you could be mad at God and that you can doubt God and love him at the same time. I've noticed over the years that many people who say that they don't believe in God are angry at God about something that, that happened to them that they felt was wrong. Like many years ago, a young man uh, scheduled an appointment with me who had lost his, his baby daughter. And he was very straightforward with me in that appointment about the fact that this loss had removed any faith in God that he had ever had. He could make no sense of it. And he was mad at God. A young woman I know lost her father at an early age and she couldn't reconcile how any good God could allow such a thing to happen. And she, she was mad at God. I just wish that they knew that faith and anger at God can go together, that maybe the best chance that they have to work through their anger is by faith. At the core of many Christians who say that they're feeling dry spiritually or or that they're discouraged spiritually is an anger at God that something didn't go the way that they thought it would, that God didn't come through for them in the way that they thought he would. And so they're, they're angry at God. But because someone else has told them the same thing, you can't be angry, you can't ever doubt, you, you, know, you, you, can't, ever, you can't ever doubt about whether God's existing in, you know, in the face of evil and suffering. You can't ever do that because they, because they think that or have been told that. Uh, they just can't say, I'm angry. I'm angry at God. They can't say that. They can't admit it. And so they, they become dry and discouraged because they never work through their anger. What I want you to see here is that the psalmist isn't afraid to acknowledge what he felt. And I would argue that it's through acknowledging his anger and his doubt that he ultimately finds hope. I want you to notice what he says in verse 16. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. What does that mean? Uh, until he entered the sanctuary of God. Well, for him, this means that for for a time, he had stopped going uh, into the temple, the place where all of Israel uh, worshiped, where the presence of God dwelt, and where they did their sacrifices. And he's saying that during that time uh, of absence from the temple, that anger and doubt began to just overwhelm him. But I want you to notice, I think what this means for us today I think what it means is that what this man did was that he considered, his, he considered evil and suffering in the light of the presence of God. That's, that's really what this means. When he says that he went into the temple, he's, he, he's saying, I'm going I'm I'm to look at evil and suffering in the light of the presence of God. And he takes the question of evil and suffering and he considers it in the light of God's presence. This has been a great encouragement to me in times of my own doubt. And let me explain why. Let me explain what this means about considering evil and suffering in the light of the presence of God. Let me explain what this means in this way. And by the way, this, what I'm going to say, it's not original to me. Philosophers and theologians have made this observation over the years. I said a moment ago that I wished that people understood that faith in God and doubt and anger can all go together. And I said that that's the best chance that people have to work through their anger. 
about evil and suffering. And I said that, that the best way to do that is by faith. Why? Why? Here, here's why. Evil and suffering is a bigger problem for people who don't believe in God than it is for people who do believe in God. Let me say that one more time. Evil and suffering is a bigger problem for people who don't believe in God than it is for people who do believe in God. Now, why do I say that? Well, let me give you this. Here are three different people. One's a theologian, one's a pastor, and one's a secular philosopher who all explain this in the same way. First one is uh, an author. He's an adjunct professor of theology at Biola University. His name is Ron Rhodes. He put it this way. It's a little lengthy, but I think it's worth reading. He says, Christians agree that what Hitler did to the Jews was a horrible crime. But he says, I must hasten to note that the very act of categorizing Hitler's actions as evil raises an important philosophical point. He says, as many thinkers have noted, if one is going to claim there is evil in the world, one must ask by what criteria is something judged to be evil in the first place? How does one judge some things to be evil and other things not to be evil? What is the moral measuring stick by which people and events are morally appraised? By what process is evil distinguished from good and vice versa? He says, the reality is that it is impossible to distinguish evil from good unless one has an infinite reference point that is absolutely good. Otherwise, one is like a person on a boat at sea on a cloudy night without a compass. If God does not exist, there is no ultimate basis to judge the crimes of Hitler. The reality of evil requires the existence of God. Do you hear what he's saying? That without God, without God, without an absolute good, you can never say that anything is evil. Many years ago, in a very famous letter from a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama, Martin Luther King made the same point about the evil of racial discrimination. He wrote that the only way that he could know whether a human law is unjust is if there is a divine law, a higher law from God. He says, and I want you to think about this for a moment, he says, if there was no divine higher law, there would be no way to know whether a particular human law is unjust or not. See, if there's, if there's no God, somebody could say, Somebody could say, well, oh, racial discrimination, well, that's unjust. But that would just be according to their standards or their opinion. And why should their standards and opinion be privileged over somebody else's who says that racial discrimination is very just? Why? Without any absolute standard of good, you, you, you can't judge good and evil. And finally, here, here's the philosopher. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. He was an existentialist. Uh, He was one of the key thinkers behind Marxism. He did not believe in a creator as the previous two people that I just read did. And in one of his most well-known works, he wrote this. He said, if God does not exist, there can no longer be an a priori good since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. He says, nowhere is it written that we must be honest, that we must not lie, because the fact is, we are on a plane where there are only men. Dostoevsky said, if God didn't exist, everything would be possible. That is the very starting point of existentialism. 
Indeed, everything is permissible, permissible if God does not exist. And as a result, man is forlorn. Because neither, and I'm going to have to turn and look at this because I just lost all of my notes from this morning. Uh, because neither within him nor without him does he find anything uh, to cling to. What all of these men are saying is the same thing, that without an absolute God, there's no way to judge what is good and what is evil. No way at all. And the question is, do you want to go through the rest of your life if you're struggling with the issue of suffering and evil, this is what I've had to wrestle through. Do you want to go through the rest of your life never coming to a place where you can say, I understand, I, at least I can live with the fact that there is a God and that there is evil and suffering and that I struggle with doubt and I struggle with anger all at the same time. Do you want to go through the rest of your life like that? It's not necessary. When this psalm says that the psalmist, when he says that he he didn't understand it until he got into the sanctuary. What he's saying is that, he, that he, he takes all of the suffering and evil that he looks at in the world and he says, there's only one place that I can go to really understand this and it's in the presence, it's in the presence of God. I have to include God in the equation in order to make any sense of this. And you see as you read the rest of the psalm that while he may not understand everything about how good and, and excuse me, how evil and suffering works, he comes to a place that he can accept it and that he believes in the end that God is good. He says at the very beginning of this passage, he says, surely God is good to Israel. And then I want you to look at how he ends the psalm, verse 25. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you, he says, will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, notice what he says. This is so fascinating. As a result of considering this issue of evil and suffering in the presence of God in the sanctuary, he says, as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell, he says, of all your deeds. Now that's an enormous change, isn't it? Is anybody else in this room as hot as I am? I'm sweating. I'm going to take this off. And I think maybe what happened is when I lost all my notes, I started to sweat there for a minute. They came back all of a sudden. It's an enormous change, isn't it, in this guy's attitude? What, what happened? What happened? What did, he, what did he see in the sanctuary that changed his mind? What he saw was altars and sacrifices. He saw beasts being sacrificed for the sins of the people of Israel. And he must have thought to himself, he must have thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm the one who's been a beast. Uh, in fact, he says that earlier in the psalm, doesn't he? He says that he was a brute beast before God. And so he sees himself there as he's in the temple. He sees himself for who he really is. And he says, I should be on that altar being sacrificed, not that animal. It should be me. 
And did you notice what he said in verse 27? He said, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Living on this side of the cross, we now understand on this side of the cross that the beasts that were being sacrificed in the temple pointed to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. There on the cross, he represented all of humanity's unfaithfulness to God. And there on a Roman cross, he would himself perish, verse 27. He would himself be the one who would be destroyed on a Roman cross so that we could live in the presence of God. Look, I, you know, I, I can't say anything this morning that's going to take away whatever evil and suffering that you have experienced or that someone else has experienced that has you know, brought you to a point in your life where you feel like either you're ready to just throw whatever faith you've had over the side or whether you're angry at God. Maybe you've already said, I couldn't possibly believe because of this. And I certainly can't solve uh, once and for all the problem of evil and suffering in the world. What I can tell you is that Christianity alone, among all of the world religions, says that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ. And therefore, he knows firsthand despair and rejection and loneliness in poverty, in bereavement, in torture, and imprisonment. There is, listen to this now, there is no abstractness about suffering for Jesus. There on the cross, Jesus himself willingly endured a greater evil and a greater suffering than any human ever will for the evil that humanity itself has done, including me, including you. And a greater evil and a greater suffering no one has ever known. Take all of the evils in the history of the world, from the ovens of Treblinka to the killing fields of Cambodia. All together, they pale in comparison to the agony that Jesus suffered in that one moment on the cross. And I'm not talking about physical agony, although physical agony for him was very real on the cross. What I'm talking about is that in that moment on the cross when he suffered, he, for the first time in all of eternity, experienced the absence of the presence of God the Father. Imagine, imagine someone that you've known all of your life. Maybe you've had someone die that you know, that you loved. You've known them and loved them all of your life, and all of a sudden, they die. Imagine that absence. Jesus experienced that and more on the cross. You might have known somebody for, well, how many years? 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, maybe 70 years. Jesus knew God the Father from all of eternity. And on the cross in that moment when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he was saying was that that for the first time in all of his existence, in the first time in all of eternity, he experienced a loneliness like none of us have ever experienced before. Whatever suffering that you feel today, whatever evil you may have encountered, know that Jesus understands it. He has felt it. He personally knows it. 
And it's only in the presence of the cross of Christ that you will ever find your way out of your anger and your doubt and your spiritual dryness. And I speak to you from personal experience about this. This is, for me, the only thing that has ever taken my anger and doubt away. And that is considering the the issue of evil and suffering in the presence of God. And when I do that, I, I realize that out of love for me, a beast before God, Jesus Christ personally experienced evil and suffering. Not to be a martyr, not to be remembered for being a good man, not to be remembered for being sacrificial, but out of necessity because there was no other way for me to stop being a beast and to become human, living in the presence of God. The idea that the God of the universe would go to such great lengths for me, a sinner, that he would personally suffer evil for me, while it doesn't answer all of my questions, it's the only thing that brings me out of doubt and discouragement and depression and leaves me saying with the psalmist that surely God is good. If you do what comes naturally and move, you move out of the presence of God in your anger, yeah, that's what comes naturally, right? We get angry and we say, I don't want to be in the, I don't want to be in the presence of God anymore. He doesn't do what I ask. I don't understand him. He, he allows this evil. Why this evil? If you do what comes naturally and you move out of the presence of God in your anger, you won't find an answer to the issue of evil and suffering, and you will live with this doubt and depression and discouragement for the rest of your life. You have to get back into the presence of God to sort all of this out in a way that will give you hope. And I'm just going to close with this. One way that some of you might consider moving into the presence of God, maybe you've been affected by evil and suffering lately. Maybe you've seen people that have been affected by it lately. Maybe the, maybe the, the earthquake in Italy, the tornadoes in Kokomo. Maybe, maybe there's somebody that you know that was affected. Maybe it just has affected you to see all of that. Maybe one way that you could consider moving into the presence of God is, is by coming to our prayer service tonight, 6 o'clock. It's not, like, it's, not a, it's not like a prayer service that you've ever experienced before. It'll be something completely different. We're not going to put you on the spot. We're not going to make you pray with people that you don't know. We're all going to pray together corporately. And I'd love to see you come. Tonight at 6 o'clock, move into the presence of God and consider the issue of evil and suffering there. Would you do that? Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there is so much more about evil and suffering than we can possibly understand ourselves. And Lord, everything about us wants to move out of your presence uh, when we see it, when we experience it. Lord, I pray for those that are here today that, like me, have just been overwhelmed by all of this this summer. Maybe they've experienced personal suffering. Maybe, maybe somebody they know has. I pray that you would take them back through Psalm 73, take them back into your presence, that they would understand that you can handle their anger and you can handle their doubt and that all of those things can go together with faith and that they would begin to consider the 
problem of evil and suffering in the light of your presence because there is no other way to sort it out. There's just not. Or for those that are here that maybe, they've, maybe they have at some point, maybe, maybe they're mad at you and, and they just say, I cannot possibly believe. Lord, I pray that you would take this reality that, that you in Jesus have experienced personally pain and rejection and loneliness and bereavement and you know all of that and what it's like and that it's not abstract to you this idea of suffering and Lord would you allow what you have done for them on the cross in Jesus to bring them to a personal relationship with you and that through that they would find comfort and they would find hope perhaps for the first time in their lives It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray these things today. Amen.